In addition to Thaco, AD&D 2nd Edition added Mutt Thaco in player's options, skills, and powers in order to make psionic combat more like physical combat, and to move psionics away from the more skill-based implementation of the complete psionics handbook. It stood for Mental 2-Hit Armor Class 0, but it probably should have been Thamako, which is also more fun to say. And now we present to you Thaco with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is like home. And who doesn't want to tell strangers on the internet where they live? <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became the head gnome. And I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. Now, after we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where we look at using monsters in our games. And then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. First, the campaign journal. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So, in addition to my Eberron game that I run for my quote-unquote main group, I've also been running a D&D campaign for my pseudo-niece and several of her school friends. <laughs> uh, I didn't run my, my Eberron game recently because of various scheduling issues, so I want to talk about the, the kids' game. We started just over a year ago, and we've been able to get in about seven sessions since then. Um, part of the reason for so few sessions is that the kids desperately wanted to play in person after being stuck on Zoom for school for over a year and a half. And yeah. I honestly can't blame them. No. <laughs> and then, of course, after that, it was a matter of juggling pandemic safety and their schedules. And surprisingly enough, for as much as I played D&D in high school, high schoolers <laughs> are surprisingly busy folks. Now, running for teens with limited RPG experience is very different than running for my regular group of adult veteran players. Thankfully, with Jared's recommendation a year ago, I picked up the Dragon of Icepire Peak starter kit, and I've been using that to introduce the kids to D&D. I highly recommend this box set for anyone wanting to get started running D&D or looking to run for newbies. And I say this because I know how overboard I can get <laughs> with my prep for my regular game. And to be completely honest, most of that effort would have been lost on the kids. This isn't to say that the kids aren't worth giving a good game, just details and nuance that would excite my veteran players isn't really something these newbies would care about just yet. They want to fight monsters, do cool magic, and crack jokes. I got to mention that one of the kids is playing a paladin and he announced to the table of teenagers that he needed to touch himself, at which oh. point we lost 20 <laughs> minutes to them laughing and having to explain that it was actually called lay on hands, which didn't make it any better. No, no. <laughs> and I mean, it's not that you don't get this with adults because many adults still have sense of humor of a 12 year olds but it tends to go a little further when you've got a table of 16 and 17 year olds there <laughs> now prep for each game has pretty much been taking each adventure piece out of the main book popping it into my own notes now while i could use the book this way i have a chance to familiarize myself with the details of each adventure 
and I make it easier to access whatever I need from that adventure because the book is great, but the adventures are all listed in alphabetical order, which isn't necessarily the order you do them in. So <laughs> it can be a lot of flipping back and forth to figure out where you're supposed to be if you're just using the book. Now that one of the kids has gone off to college and the rest are starting their senior year, we're kind of in a holding pattern for our next session. As I said, high schoolers are surprisingly busy folks. They've said they're willing to try playing with Michael, the one at college, zooming in. But I think that once they're settled into school year, they're probably going to want to just wait for breaks. I don't know if all of them are planning on going, but because the rest of them are all seniors at the same school, they have a senior trip coming up that's a pretty big deal. I don't think they're going until January, but they're going to Italy. Oh. In addition to all the other senior stuff these kids are focused on, they're also highly focused on that trip to Italy. Oh, yeah. I, I imagine. I am hoping to get them to the fight with the dragon, spoilers, before <laughs> the rest of them graduate from high school, though. An adventure called Dragon of Icefire Peak has a dragon in it? Yeah, shocking, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so, Jared, why don't you tell us about your campaign that I know nothing about? If you didn't catch it from last episode, Ange is one of my players in the campaign that I'm running. We're running a campaign set in Midgard in Cobalt uh, Press's setting. And we are in the Dragon Empire. All of our people are working as agents for the local dragon lord, uh, Yurazaza. Basically, after getting out of the dungeon with all of the survivors, the objective now was to get back to Yurazaza and give her the evidence that something was going down here. I wanted to make sure that even though most of this was going to be travel and then talking to their boss, that they still had some decision points and that we actually kind of dug into some of the story elements that were still going on. So right off the bat, we had a moral quandary where <laughs> one of the prisoners was somebody that had been missing for a long time that had testified against the silver dragon that preceded Yurazaza. And essentially her testimony is what allowed him to be executed. So right off the bat, they had to make a decision whether to bring this person back or to let her he disappeared and <laughs> the party was not having it so they decided they were going to bring her back now i will point out there was another debate that happened here because Marin desperately wanted to go back to the fortress and finish cleaning it out and none of the rest of us were having that we're like no we're not going back there yeah and and basically the main mission that you were given was find out what's going on here and bring me some evidence of it not necessarily Clear out this entire place of any living soul. <laughs> so the way home was going to be for them to all ride on War Wyvern. And I really wanted this to be a thing. I didn't just want to say, and you get on Wyverns and it takes you a day and a half and you get back. I wanted them to feel like this was kind of a, a big deal that they were riding on these, you know, these war mounts that could fly. So we did a little bit of role-playing with them getting uh, acclimated to their individual wyverns that they were going to be riding. And after they met all of their wyverns and talked to them, we did a group check to see how well they were going to navigate flying home. And it was fun because we did get to add a few details to how the flight was going and how the wyverns were reacting <laughs> to everyone. There's a group skill check setup that was first introduced in Ghosts of Saltmarsh. And I like using that where it's not just a group skill check, but like if everyone makes a check, it is a total success. If 
more than half, but not everyone makes it. It is a partial success if they fail, but not everyone fails. It's a failure, and then it's a total failure if everybody misses their check. Because I like that that gives you a little bit more reason to want everybody to succeed, even if you already know that three out of four people did. So I tend to like to set up the group challenges that way. I'd love it if I saw some more Watsy things that actually use that same setup after they introduced it in Ghost of Saltmarsh. But um, the way the flight home was going to work is if they got a total success, they were going to find some decent currents and make it home in about a day instead of a day and a half. If they succeeded, they were still going to have the regular trip. They were going to have, have to camp overnight in the mountains and then they'd, they'd be home. If they failed, which they did, it took them long enough to navigate the mountains that they drew the attention of a hungry rock that decided it wanted a snack. And if they would have had a total failure, they would have run into a thunderstorm at the same time that the rock caught up with them. I will note I succeeded on my rolls for this. Your wyvern loved you. Oh, I love my wyvern. <laughs> Rose Petal? Is that her name? Yeah, I think so. She was like dusky reddish color. We bonded. Oh, yeah. The rock fight was very interesting because, on one hand, a rock would totally annihilate you if you were fighting it face-to-face. But I also knew that the wyverns were definitely going to skew this encounter, so I didn't feel too bad about throwing something that was wildly over, you know, your abilities to deal with, because I knew it wasn't going to kill you in one attack. That having been said, wow, did those wyverns mess up that uh, that rock. <laughs> <laughs> it tried to get away it did I, I i had already gone into it thinking the rock is hungry so if it gets bloodied before it can grab somebody and eat it they're it's gonna fly off because it's too much work for his dinner and it was trying to fly off and then the attacks of opportunities from the last couple wyverns just kind of uh finished it off there <laughs> the war wyverns specifically are a type of wyvern that they have in the midgard setting and it specifically says when you're writing them they do get to use their tail attacks. So it's not kind of like some of the other uh, mount rules where like when you're moving on it and giving it directions, it doesn't really get to do anything. And that made a big difference in this fight. I will say, just to foreshadow what else we're talking about tonight, it was kind of hard to figure out how much of a benefit the wyverns were going to be versus the rock. Yeah. Because that math gets real wonky when you start adding in mounts that have a certain CR but they can only take one of their actions and then you have PCs and everything it it gets real fuzzy shockingly enough figuring out how to put together monster encounters is not straightforward huh that's it's weird we should we should talk about that later we should talk about that because they had a controversial figure with them that had basically testified against Yurazaza's friend I decided that when they went to talk to their boss, it wasn't just going to be a straightforward discussion. So I decided to use a modified version of the audience rules, which originally showed up in Adventures of Middle-Earth, but there's a version of them in the Ruins of Simbarum. And the neat thing about both of those that I found out when I did my review for these is that the designers on both of those, uh, 5th edition adaptation of the One Ring and a 5th edition adaptation of Simbarum, they had a lot of the same designers working on both of those. And it was kind of neat. And I could tell once I knew that with a lot of the, the conversion work that they did there. But basically, in the audience rules, you have the group make a group skill check to see what kind of mood the person is in before 
the last person talks to them. So if you blow that audience check, it's going to be much harder for that person that makes the final check to uh, talk to them to actually successfully plead their case in front of this person. On the other hand, if you do super well, they might think, okay, this is fine. I'm in a good mood. Ask me whatever you want to ask me. I appreciated this because Kizina is not a charismatic character. (laughs) She has no interpersonal skills. She is awkward and not (laughs) understanding of how to interact with people most of the time, but she has a really good insight score. (laughs) So I appreciated that I was able to roll insight to Mm -hmm. kind of be able to watch and get a feel for how Yurazaza was responding to us and help the group that way without having to make a straight persuasion roll with my plus zero. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I like about the way a lot of those audience rules are written. You're basically just kind of prepping the person, the really important person that you're talking to for the final conversation. So you can justify a lot of different skill checks. You know, one of the things that they talk about, like in Adventures of Middle Earth, you could like recite an old poem that recounts the connection between your people and the person you're talking to. You know, you can get creative and think of these things just to interact with this person you're having the audience with before that person has to make that persuasion check at the end to actually find out what's going to be the outcome of this audience. So, yeah, I thought that I kind of like that. I enjoyed that. I'm going to be introducing the uh, monstrous companion rules from the uh, B-Start supplement that MCDM put out. And we did this by Eileen's character, who is a uh, Vine Soul sorcerer, and she is also a SMR. And she gave up part of her soul to uh, get her Void Dragon to be reincarnated, which they thought was going to be in its skull or maybe some form of undead. And it turns out he was literally reborn as a hatchling. So now she has this hatchling that is partially attached to her soul that we're going to be using the uh, Monstrous Companion rules for... uh, which, if you haven't seen them, it's kind of neat because, like, every round that they're in combat, they build up a certain amount of fury, and you can spend that fury to do things. And there's things that you want to have it built up for, but if it goes over its threshold, it does something random instead of the thing you want it to do. So, for example, with, with a Hatchling Dragon, you want to maybe get it up to 8 fury so it can use its breath weapon. But if it goes too high above that, it's just going to freak out and do what it wants to. He's adorable. <laughs> his ward is is the one coin that uh eileen's character used to talk to him through it was great um so when we were wrapping this up i like to use the uh, time flies rules which appear in the uh, midgard campaign setting book which is basically once you hit the end of an adventure the amount of downtime your characters have is two times the real world difference between when you're going to play again so in our case since we play every two weeks that means they're going to have about 28 days between adventures when they can do whatever they're going to do. And I kind of like that because one, they're not leveling up immediately to where it's like, Hey, we've been adventuring for three weeks in uh, game time. And now we're 20th level. <laughs> we've kind of had that problem in one of the D and D games I've been playing in that my friend Tristan runs where I think in game about six months have passed mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've gone from like second level to 10th level. Uh, uh-huh. It's momentous stuff, it's epic world-breaking events and all of this, but it's still like, we just met six months ago, guys. This is the most momentous six months that anyone has ever had. (laughs) (laughs) 
the other thing I like about that is I do like people being able to use like downtime rules. I mean, they exist in 5e. I've heard a lot of people say they don't know when to use them because if you don't give your players downtime, it's almost like how I feel with trying to use traits and bonds and flaws to generate inspiration. A lot of players are not geared towards interrupting the DM and saying, this is my trait that just triggered. Please give me inspiration. <laughs> and it's it's a lot. It's the same thing with downtime. A lot of players won't sit there and say, I have this thing that's going to take me 14 days. Can we all just, you know, sit around for 14 days while I do this thing? Yeah. So I think it gives you a little bit more breathing room to say, no, the next 28 days, nothing really momentous happens and, you know, figure out some downtime stuff that you want to do. Now, sometimes there's not perfect downtime stuff that you want to do, but at least you do have the option to do it. Then. Yeah. Um, so part of giving them the downtime, though, was also I used their contacts to drop them the next series of different adventures that are going to interweave the next part of the plot. Basically, they have four plot hooks that were delivered by four different NPCs that each one of them has as a contact. I did this because it's like, okay, you're going to have downtime. Give me a heads up on which one of these things you think you're going to follow up on. And what we kind of ended up with is 50% of the people wanted to do one, and then two others wanted to do two other things. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like everybody wanted to do the one that their friend, their contact, mm -hmm. pitched to them. Whereas I was like, well... Xenas and Ivy's are kind of related, and I think Ivy's is a little more time-sensitive. So let's go do that one first. I definitely, in my mind, and I hoped I communicated it, but some of those were a little bit more time-sensitive than others, because yeah. this is meant for you to do in whatever order that you want to do these in. But yeah, maybe excavating a ruin isn't, you know, the next <laughs> thing you have to do when there's people that might be being held hostage. We kind of reached a consensus that they're going to ask Yurazaza to send some people to help out one group while they're doing another thing, and then they'll circle back around and see how that's come up. I hope that didn't feel too much like I was pushing you towards one thing, but it was more like <laughs> once it looked like you had the majority that wanted to do something, I didn't want anyone to feel like they couldn't follow up on the other things, but I wanted to give a different way to follow up on it. I loved when Marin suggested that we could just have the authorities go check out the smugglers' caves. And yeah. Kazina was like, let's not. Let's let's not send the cops down into the caves yeah. where the smugglers bring in stuff, because those are my friends and I love that your your underworld contact is like, I trust you. That's why I'm asking you specifically to help me out here. Yeah, let me send some cops. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun. And you can let me know how well you think some of that worked out. Yeah, no, I, I liked a lot of it. I, I like the way you handle the skill challenges. I actually had no idea that we could have avoided the rock fight at all. Mm. I thought it was just like, oh, Jared planned a fight where we get attacked <laughs> by a rock. I was completely unaware that, you know, like that was because of the fact that we as a group failed the challenge to be able to handle <laughs> our war wyverns properly so i mean i know it doesn't sound random because i did have a rock in mind the whole time but i almost like doing like the skill challenge as part of travel to trigger a quote-unquote random encounter mm -hmm. instead of just rolling for a random encounter yeah because it puts the dice back on all of you no that definitely works so i am looking forward to our next session that'll be hopefully in two weeks 
And with that, I believe we have wrapped up our campaign journal for this time around. I think we have. All right. So now let's move into the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. On today's show, we're going to look at using monsters in your game. What do you want to do with them? How much of a challenge do you want them to be? And how do you pick the best ones for your objectives? So, let me ask this, Ange. Um, since 3rd edition's encounter building rules, there's been a train of thought that says encounters are intended to be balanced. What do you think about that thought process? Let me start by telling you a story. Years ago, in the 80s, in my very early days of playing D&D, we spent a Saturday afternoon making characters. Showed up at Tom's house, we just started making characters. This was supposed to be an all-day affair, you know, as you do when you're 17 and have nothing else and you're mm -hmm. like i don't i don't know why these kids today are so busy i certainly wasn't <laughs> anyway spent the afternoon making characters the gm pulled a module off the shelf and we started playing it was a tpk before we even got to the entrance of the dungeon it turns out we had made second level characters and he had grabbed an eighth level adventure <laughs> And rather than saying, oops, and starting over again with a level-appropriate adventure, the GM was like, oh, well, want to make new characters for a different adventure? Oh, goodness. I mean, that was definitely a different time and place. But for the most part, I think it is generally a good idea to make sure the encounters are balanced for the party at the table. There are definitely times and reasons to throw something too easy or too hard at them. But those should be conscious choices based on the needs of the game rather than an accident just because you pulled something too hard off the shelf. Oh, yeah, definitely. One of the things I'm always a big fan of is to be informed when you deviate from a baseline. So in other words, even if you don't want to use a balanced encounter, know what a balanced encounter is supposed to be before you say, I want this to be a little bit harder or I want this to be really easy because it, once you know that baseline you at least are doing it intentionally <laughs> it's not yeah. just an accidental thing what was kind of interesting to me is i've heard a lot of people talk about how challenge rating first came into being in third edition and you know the xp amounts this was going to tell you exactly how balanced everything should be and there's two things that are interesting here one third edition if you actually read the encounter building rules it actually told you once in a while, you were supposed to throw things that were under and over a balanced encounter at people, which is the part that people kind of miss a lot of times when they talk about third being appropriately balanced all the time. And the other thing is, in second edition, they would tell you how much XP a monster was worth. And it wasn't like a perfectly balanced thing, but it did give you an idea. If you're seeing something that's worth 10,000 XP and you have second level characters, that is a big red flag. <laughs> I look at it this way. As much as this is a game and there needs to be that sense of random chance and everything that comes with it being a game, it is still a game that is creating a story. Yeah. And in that story, you want your players to be challenged, but you also want them to be successful. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm a huge believer in the Powered by the Apocalypse philosophy of be a fan of your players' characters. Mm -hmm. Giving them balanced encounters generally is a good way to keep the story of the game moving forward with those players, 
those players' characters being challenged without being overwhelmed. So it's like you want the the too easy fight or the too hard fight to be conscious choices that you are making as a GM rather than just accidents. And I know we're going to get into more fiddly bits about building encounters and everything, but one thing I will say when it comes to throwing those easy encounters at people so that they feel better about, you know, like, oh, we're badasses <laughs> now. We can we can we can handle this. I would severely warn you, don't use things that are complicated that you know your PCs are going to beat, because as a GM, those things are just harder to run and you still know that the PCs are going to stomp all over them. So if you are going to give them that feeling of being able to run Rough Dodd over, you know, CR things that are way below them make them things that are simple to run too. Yeah, I would I would add on to that. If you know your players are going to steamroll something, don't have it be something that has a cool ability you're never going to get to. Oh yeah, that's just heartbreaking. I'll touch on this later, but there's nothing more frustrating than having an adversary that can do something cool and then they never get to do it because your players just obliterate them. Definitely. So, Ange, do you use encounter building rules from either the DMG or Xanathar's Guide? Honestly, I don't know that I could say I use either of those. Um, to be completely upfront, I mostly use Kobold Fight Club or the beta version of the encounter builder on D&D Beyond. I have the benefit of being a player in 5e for a couple of years before I started running. So I was able to ride on the shoulders of those who came before me, who were able to say, when I first started working on my first 5e adventure, I went to my friend, Jen Pixelscapes. I'm like, Jen, how do I, how do I know how to stat account? And she's like, let me take you to the Kobold Fight Club. <laughs> that was, was slash is a wonderful site that lets you get at least a ballpark figure for your care, your PCs levels combined with the monsters you want to use and whether that encounter is going to be easy, medium, hard, deadly. Mm. You know, there's there's some fiddly bits there too. They're not perfect, but I find those particular tools absolutely invaluable. The first time I ran 5e, I kind of ignored the whole part of the math where you're supposed to multiply how much <laughs> a monster is worth when there are multiples of that monster. And I was just thinking... Oh, my encounter budget is like 2000 XP, so it won't matter. That's like four wolves, right? I don't need to mess with this multiplier thing. I am going to tell you that wolves, especially with pack tactics and me not realizing <laughs> what advantage really did to the uh, curve of the numbers when I first ran that, I had a TPK, almost a TPK in my first encounter. I basically had some bandits chew off the wolves and then fix up all of the PCs and hold them for <laughs> ransom because I felt bad because these wolves just tore into them. <laughs> I will say if you want to challenge your low level players, having your adversaries have pack tactics <laughs> is a really good way to actually challenge them. Yeah, definitely. But honestly, like you, when 5e first rolled out, I had uh, gone back to school for a little bit. And most of what I was doing was I was a player in a lot of Adventures League games. And when I did run, I was running either Adventures League scenarios or I ran Lost Minds of Fandelver a couple times. So I wasn't actually building a lot of encounters when I first started running 5e. 
So it wasn't until later that I was really um, starting to uh, come up with these encounters on my own and trying to balance them. I think I did come across Kobold Fight Club first for a while. I was really glad when Xanathars came out because instead of telling you to do your XP budget and doing all the math with that, it just has a bunch of charts showing you if you have this many PCs and you want this kind of level, you know, you can cross-reference and that's the CR of something you need to run into. But the thing about Xanathars is either you need to have all of your multiple creatures that they fight at being the same CR, or you're looking at them fighting one thing that is a certain CR. It's a little bit harder using those charts, even though they're great and they're really easy to read, it's a little bit harder to figure out, okay, some things are CR3, some are CR2, and then I have a CR4. It's more like, okay, I have this whole thing of CR2s, how many can I use? I'm very rusty on it today, but I will reference my original Eberron campaign quite a bit. I actually ran that in Pathfinder, mm -hmm. and I appreciated the math that Pathfinder had in place for figuring out the right number of critters to have in an encounter mm -hmm. again i don't know that i could do the math easily today because i'm very rusty on it but i did appreciate how they had all of that set up for pathfinder i use that a lot even though i was running adventure paths a lot when i was uh, running pathfinder i almost always had like six or seven players instead of the assumed four mm -hmm. so i was always having to bump up those encounters by about 50 percent just to make sure that they were working right so I did have to play with that math a little bit, but it did pretty much work out. There's still some fiddly things with Pathfinder, especially once you get to higher levels and you have a player at the table like I did that knew exactly what options to put together so that they could poke your monster in the eye and <laughs> annihilate it in one shot. But that is that is for another day. Um, I do miss the fourth edition encounter budgets because that was really easy because it was like, this is a challenging encounter. Subtract all the XP of everything you want to add into the encounter from this. Fourth edition actually had some pretty slick things in it, mm -hmm. despite its reputation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love fifth edition, don't get me wrong, but encounter building is more challenging than I wish it were. But yeah, anymore, like if I'm building my own things, I, like you were saying, I'll use that encounter builder on D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. Because even if I'm using monsters that aren't there, it's really easy just to say, okay, I just need to throw something CR6 into this encounter builder to see where it shakes out. I think the one thing I would caution people is be mindful of things like we already mentioned pack tactics. Be mindful of resistances. Resistances and immunities can skew what you think is a balanced encounter into something that's going to wipe the floor with your players. Yeah, and resistances, they're a pain too. Resistances and immunities, because they are either a big factor or they are no factor at all. Once somebody can bypass an immunity, it doesn't do anything. So it goes from being this major impediment towards fighting them towards this fight is no harder than any other, you know, any other fight. Just be mindful of it, because like... If you throw, you know, especially early on, lower levels, if you throw a creature with immunity to non-magical weapons at your players mm -hmm. who don't have any magical weapons, mm, that fight could be a little harder than you expected it to be. Oh, man. That reminds me of the uh, first lycanthrope we ran into in 5e. <laughs> as, as a player, I was used to 
because a lot of things in 5e just default to being resistant instead of being immune to things. And, like, cantrips are immune to things. <laughs> you can't hurt them at all unless you have silver magic. Yeah. And that taught me that 5e still had some things that <laughs> were completely immune to what you were trying to do to them. <laughs> so we touched on this a little bit before, but do you ever use monsters outside of their recommended range for your characters in your games? There's two aspects for this for me. On one hand, my Saturday group is very good at playing tactically. And I've found that many of the encounters I create that fall into hard or deadly range for their group end up being too easy. So I have to be very careful when trying to give them a challenge without crossing the line into making it too deadly. I usually end up tweaking the encounter up a little bit beyond where it's supposed to be safe because I trust that these players, they're veteran players, most of them have been playing as long as I have, some longer. There's a couple of younger players, like Laura. Laura's in her late 20s. She's still been playing for 15 years, <laughs> you know? I mean, on the opposite side of that spectrum, my teens are not tactically-minded players. <laughs> During the Butterskull Ranch adventure, I set the seam for them that there was signs of battle on the farm with the barn still smoldering and loud, raucous noises coming from inside the ranch itself. Their solution was to knock on the door. <laughs> they basically uh. went from having several different small fights with a handful of orcs to having all 12 orcs inside the house come out at once. <laughs> I mean, they don't play tactically and they don't always use their optimal abilities, so the fights can be a bit harder. I haven't yet gotten the bard. To give out bardic inspiration and the druid keeps wanting to bonk things with her club even though i keep pointing out that shillelagh is her bonking spell yes if you want to use your club at least optimize it <laughs> you know it's like i think i finally gotten it like yes you can still bonk things but cast this first so you actually <laughs> do damage Oh, On the very rare occasions, I've had creatures that they couldn't handle show up. And I say this for my veteran players. Mm. I make sure I telegraph that this might not be a fight they want to attempt just yet. I want to keep the game world feeling real with a full range of danger and challenge for the players. But I still also want them to feel like the big damn heroes most of the time. Mm -hmm. Like one example I can think of is actually like it's from Waterdeep dragon heist there's a scene in the sewers where they're looking for something and there's an illithid the illithid is way out of their range at that point but the illithid is supposed to be he's there he's saying stuff to the other npcs that are there and then he leaves because even if he sees the pcs these they're beneath him he doesn't have time for this he has more important things to take care of so you get that scare of there is a big bad there but it's not meant for the players to actually try and engage with it at this stage. I remember that encounter because I played through that and there were only two of us when we uh, ran into that. So I was like, <laughs> I, we are in over our heads. Do not make yeah, noise. Yeah, I mean, that's still, that's still a tough <laughs> fight because you got at least one intellect devourer in that fight. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of other dangerous things in that fight. But 
the illithid is what really scares people when they, they kind of peek in the room and see what's going on. I really like using overpowered things, kind of like for the reason that you said. I don't like for it to feel like you will never see a dragon because you aren't high enough level to see a dragon. So I really do want them to run into things. I have noticed I never want to start an encounter and tell people, hey, I'm just doing this for you to uh, run into this thing. Don't fight it. Because that feels way too anticlimactic. But on the other hand, the second somebody in the party says, I think this thing is out of our league, I will really lean into, yeah, you definitely get the feeling this thing could probably hand you your asses. If I can interrupt with a quick story. There was a con game. I don't, it wasn't D&D. It was something else. But it was a, it was a fantasy-based game where we were an adventuring party that had been hired to go retrieve an item. And the game starts with us arriving back at our sponsor's house to hand over the artifact. And <laughs> it is very clearly telegraphed that we are lowly adventurers just beginning our trade. And in walk these mighty heroes that are everything we wish we could grow up to be. And because they are so renowned, they get to go in before us. My character was an oracle of some sort, so I could peek into the other room. And I saw these mighty adventures slaughtered in an instant by our benefactor as he took <laughs> the artifact from them. And I was like, oh, oh, we, we need to go. We, we need to go. And I believe this was a Cortex game. GM is sliding me bennies every time I said, <laughs> we need to get out of here. The rest of the table, like, could not get the picture and, like, insisted <laughs> in rushing into the room to see what all the fuss is about. And I'm like, no, guys, we need to run. We need to get out of here. We're in over our head. And part of the problem was the two leaders of the rest of the players. One knew exactly what he was doing and was goading the players into staying, while the other player... I don't think she understood that you could have an encounter that you couldn't win. By the end of that scene, I had about 20 bennies sitting in front of me and the party was still <laughs> TPK'd. We, we ended a four-hour con game in 45 minutes oh, because the other players wouldn't get the picture that we needed to run. The whole adventure was supposed to be running away from this guy and getting the artifact to somebody else who could help us. <laughs> anyway... That actually brings up something that happened in one of my groups, too, because, you know, I mentioned I, I ran Lost Minds of Fendel for a couple times. And the, one of the encounters in that is there is a red wizard trying to excavate a site at some point in that adventure. And my PCs decided that because red wizard equals bad, you know, they knew the reputation of the red wizards of they, they decided we have to kill them quick because... They can't be up to any good. And if you read the encounter, this red wizard is just, he's a scholar. Like, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but he's also not there to mwahaha, <laughs> murder everyone and all that. He's looking for like an ancient Netherese artifact. So he's just kind of excavating the site and they charge him and the wizard proceeds to murder two of them immediately with a fireball. <laughs> Drops a third one to zero hit points and... One of the things I wanted to communicate, though, because I want this to tell them something about how I run games and how this campaign is going to work. So I have the Red Wizard look at the last person standing and say, you can take your people now. Like, I didn't want to do this to any of you, but those two were charging me and they were going to cut my head off. So you can't blame me for fireballing. <laughs> 
I am perfectly willing to let you just, you know, take your dead friends and your, your friend that is just knocked out and go back to town. And if you ever want to visit me again, just remember to be, to, to be, you know, a little bit more polite. <laughs> and they actually did come back to talk to him later, which was hilarious. <laughs> that is, that is funny. I like that. So, Ange, do you ever add other objectives into combat scenes that you run? I probably don't do this as often as I should. I usually try and have there be a narrative reason for why the fight is happening, other than just time to fight some stuff. Let's be honest, if we're playing a D&D game, occasionally people want to bash things with their weapons or their magic, so it's like you still want to have your fun combat encounters mixed in there with all the role-playing, but... For me, I really need there to be narrative reasons why things are happening. Sometimes that'll be based on the ecology of the place they're fighting. I'm a big advocate for dungeon ecology. Yeah. Sometimes it's something, you know, in the larger story that's happening in game, but there's always a reason why this fight is happening other than just time for a random encounter. I should do the having there be something else going on in the scene i have things had things before where there is a device that is doing things that they need to stop before a certain time i have played in games where there's been like a ritual taking place on the other side of the encounter from us mm -hmm. that we need to get to and stop but it's not something i i do as often as i should when you said that it actually reminded me two sessions ago in our game when you were messing with that machine to decouple the, the, <laughs> the planar layer from the uh, the dungeon, I really should have not telegraphed the ooze and had that like hiding and drop on you while you were doing the deciphering of the machine instead of having the ooze guarding it first. Yeah. That's something like by the time you started like analyzing the machine, I was like, man, I, I did this all in the wrong order. This would have been a lot more fun if that thing would have fallen on their heads while they were working on the machine. <laughs> I mean, fun with quotation marks. <laughs> I have managed to do a few things where it was more objective based. I think you've seen this a couple of times in the campaign. Like we've had a few bystanders that get caught in the crossfire. Mm -hmm. It's part of the scene. Like if you don't want that person to die, somebody is going to peel off from the fight and take care of that person and maybe get them to cover before they get, come back to the fight. And I kind of like that dynamic, especially when your people are playing heroic characters. Yeah. Because it's not just, we're heroic because we killed the bad guys. It's, we're heroic because we actually care about people and, you know, we'll do stuff to help them. I remember one fight I had in my original Eberron campaign where they were attacked in their buddy's tavern where they were basically staying for their time in Sharn. And this wasn't necessarily an aspect that I added to it as much as it was an aspect the players added to it. Somebody used summon beast summon monster something like that and summoned a giant bull that ended up <laughs> running straight at one of the assassins going straight through the wall and falling several levels of sharn deep into the cogs the rest of their concern for the fight was like oh no mabel's gonna kill us we broke a wall in the end <laughs> that is great the Streets of Avalon game that I ran before um, we were doing this one, there was a thing that I established early on where there was a demon that was hunting the PCs. And there were certain things that they could do 
to where I would actually lower the chance that it would randomly show up. If they don't do this and they don't do this, it slowly like loses their trail. But then if they do something else, the chances widen and I roll and it shows up in the scene. It was almost like like Nemesis in Resident Evil 3 in Resident <laughs> Evil 3, where it's just like all of a sudden it's like, crap, thing showed up, time to run. And it would turn into a chase scene every time this happened. Which is really funny because by the time this all resolved, they could have stood their ground and killed it. But because it started chasing them when they were lower level, yeah. they just had it in their heads that we can't deal with this thing. <laughs> but what it would do is it would chase them. But I, they had the opportunity to widen their gap because, like, it would run into, like, guards and it would stop and kill whatever was in its path. So it was going to stop and grab this guard and eat it first and then keep chasing them. <laughs> so they would just run until they lost it again. And the final thing that they could do to deal with it if they didn't want to fight it was to find the altar of the hidden temple where it first got summoned and unsummon it. And they did eventually do that, but it was a lot of fun because that felt to me like a very standard fantasy trope where it's like, it's not that we can kill this demon, it's that we can go back here and do this ritual as long as some people are keeping it busy and send it back where it came from originally. <laughs> but I loved it when it would show up and it would just start like eating people left and right and members of the watch, which just so everyone knows, the watch was very corrupt in this neighborhood, so it was perfectly okay for a demon to eat them. But that, that was a lot of fun. And that, that is something I find that is challenging is it's hard to plan on a chase scene actually being a chase scene when you intend it to be a chase scene. <laughs> because it seems like there's always ways that people can circumvent actually participating in chase mechanics. I didn't want to derail, but I need to bring up the chase <laughs> scene from Waterdeep Dragon Heist. <laughs> <laughs> the characters have found an object that they need to continue the plot, and the object is grabbed by some flying devils. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which form of monstrosity grabbed them, but they were flying. And the whole thing is supposed to be a chase across the rooftops of Waterdeep. Immediately, two of my players are like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> they were in the tower where the artifact was stolen from them. They're looking out the window, seeing the things fly away. One of the players tries to follow. She goes to climb the side of a building, rolls a one. So I said she fell into an open sewer, at which point the fourth player just stopped what she was doing to laugh at this third player because that was the relationship they had. And so third player gives up, decides to go home to take a bath, while fourth player just follows her to mock her the entire way. Uh... The tabaxi rogue was the only one to actually fully give chase. The half-orc bard did try and follow, but he couldn't keep up with the tabaxi rogue because the tabaxi rogue had tabaxi movement and rogue movement and just... yeah. The problem with this whole thing was is that the encounter at the end of this chase is supposed to be for a full party, mm -hmm. not a single lone tabaxi rogue going up against a chain devil on their own. Yeah. And I had to do a lot of GM acrobatics <laughs> to keep that from turning deadly for the tabaxi rogue. And I have heard several people say that that chase is really hard to actually get to work the way the adventure assumes it works. Yes. Because D&D &D is an interesting thing, and chases are hard. Very hard. 
I have a shorter story about a chase. I had a chase where a criminal was going to start running from people, and I had a paladin in the party, and he used compelled duel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you think that player characters need to be near death for an encounter to feel like it was challenging? Honestly, no. Um, sometimes that can really ramp up the tension and make a combat feel more impactful, but it can also just as easily make the combat frustrating by sidelining the characters who are struggling to stay in the fight. Um, it's a really tough thing trying to balance the danger of a fight. I want to challenge the players, but I honestly don't want to kill my PCs. I really am a big old softy, so it's like I want to challenge them, but I don't want to kill them. The other thing I find a little frustrating is when the players run away from a fight that they should be able to handle. I have one group I play with that turtles up way too often and makes planning fun encounters and scenes difficult. Mm -hmm. It is so frustrating to plan some cool stuff and then have the players run away from it in the first scene because something was scary. I've had to scold them on several occasions to be the big damn heroes. Sometimes that fear is earned, and in that case, I don't mind. Uh, when I was running Dragon Heist, in when they were first level before I was actually using the campaign module, Mm -hmm. I threw some Ublex spawn at the players, and there are some creepy, creepy little low-level monsters to fight. Mm -hmm. And they terrified the players. That was one of those fights where they did come close to death, and it really made an impression on the players. Such an impression that several la levels later, when they were in the sewers and they saw signs that there was an adult Ublex nearby, they noped out of there so fast my <laughs> head was spinning. <laughs> I kind of like that idea. Like, people don't always think we're three levels higher than we were when we first ran into these things. And it stays with them that, like, yeah. these things were terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that, for me, fights feel like they're engaging. If the monster gets to do its signature thing, mm -hmm. and it somehow affected all of the PCs. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to drop to zero. It could just mean that somebody got grappled. It could just mean that it inflicted a condition on somebody. It's that the PC had to deal with something that the monster did. I think that's what actually makes it feel more challenging, just because you didn't walk through the fight completely scot-free. Something happened to you. And it doesn't have to be that you almost died. It can be that you got stuck to the monster and couldn't pull yourself away from it. You know, things like that. <laughs> you don't necessarily want your players to have their characters wiped out by the dragon's breath. Mm -hmm. But if you have a dragon in an encounter, you still want that dragon to get their breath off. Yes. And honestly, even if your players don't say this, they want the monsters to do the cool things too. Oh, yeah. Even with my players that turtle up, they still want to see the monsters do the cool things. They're just so traumatized by past bad GMs that they don't know how to <laughs> engage with the story. Mm-hmm without feeling like they're trying to sacrifice them to my GM wilds. <laughs> there is a monster, it's a cobalt press monster that's in the Tales of the Old Marguerite, and it's a boar that is, like, infused with a thunderstorm, and it has two recharge abilities. So you can get off two of these, like, really special things first before it goes back to just its regular attacks. One is it charges and turns partially into a lightning bolt when it charges. <laughs> and the other is it will jump and then land on someone and it does thunder damage when it hits because it makes like the, you know, the rolling thunder sound. 
And oh my god, that was so much fun to use. Not because it leveled the PCs, but just because they were like, it just turned to lightning and then it jumped on <laughs> us and did an area. I, I, I need to find this boar because he is going to be living in the jungles of Zendrick somewhere. <laughs> Oh, man, that one was a lot of fun to run. And also, I think it's fun to hit PCs with a really hard rechargeability just because it will scare them. Mm -hmm. And even if it never recharges, that tension of knowing that any round it could recharge, so we really have to deal with this thing fast before it recharges, also creates that edge to the encounter. Yeah. Even if you didn't drop anyone, if you made everyone bloodied in one shot, they're all like, no, we can't let this thing get that off again. <laughs> Have you ever changed plans in the middle of a fight to recalibrate the difficulty of an encounter? Yes, but it has to be done for very specific reasons. During my original Eberron campaign, I had them ambushed by bandits on their way back down the mountain from a location that they had gone to. I had kind of forgotten that this party could drop three fireballs in a single round. <laughs> Um, most of the bad guys were wiped out in that first round. In that case, I ended up seeding in some additional bad guys that were just around the corner, and I kept one <laughs> spellcaster alive so he could actually get off one spell. Mm -hmm. I think I described him as being this charred husk of a human just <laughs> shivering and shaking as the magic flowed out of him with his last breath. Uh. Other times, though, I just let them have the win. The famous one I've talked about before is the clay golem in the basement of the Library of Hornberg. <laughs> they were trying to get information from the head librarian who had no time for these silly adventures. So he like told them if they would deal with this problem in the basement with an experiment that had gone awry with a clay golem, he would answer their questions. They're like, okay, it's locked up. It's not getting out anywhere. And they're like, well, he's like, I'd like you to go deal with it now and they're like give us 30 minutes <laughs> so they they're in the library of Kornberg. they did some research they looked up clay golems they found out adamantine <laughs> weapons work the gunslinger had adamantine bullets <laughs> so basically they walked in two characters got to go first and then the gunslinger went and the gunslinger critted and if you know anything about pathfinder and gunslingers and crits <laughs> you know that this was a lot of damage it didn't matter that the other two characters had already gone and damaged the clay golem. The clay golem was dead the moment that gunslinger entered the room. Now, I could have had a second clay golem hiding in the stacks or something like that, but my players were so happy and so psyched from that crit and taking out a clay golem in one hit that I just let them have it. I let them have that win because their <laughs> excitement and joy was more than enough to make up for the fact that I didn't get to do anything with the encounter. It was still memorable. It was still memorable. <laughs> I have somewhere artwork that one of my players drew of the clay golem with his bloody footprints from the gnome he had smoshed to bits. <laughs> Another time I might Fudge an encounter is when there's a personal narrative stake in the fight. Um, if you've got a player who has a long-standing rivalry with an enemy, or like it's their personal enemy that murdered their family, you want to make sure that character gets a chance 
to get some hits on that character before they're dead. Mm -hmm. It's really dissatisfying to be in a combat encounter with your big bad and you can't actually get to them and your party members have killed them outright. Mm -hmm. That's really unsatisfying. So on a narrative level, try and make sure that the invested character gets a chance to actually engage with that character in combat. It's really interesting because I've actually seen a few adventures. I think one of them was in Adventures in Middle-Earth where they will do things like these guards have temporary hit points until they sound the alarm and then the temporary hit points go away. You have to be more focused on taking the guard down before it sends off the alarm. But once they do, you can cut them down like that because they don't matter narratively anymore. And I'm thinking you could do something like that with someone that is tied to someone, mm -hmm. giving them temporary hit points as long as the person that they are tied to hasn't attacked them. They're going to keep absorbing blows until that person gets a hit in on them. And then, okay. The incident that always sticks out to me is when Jen, Pixelscapes, was running Horde of the Dragon Queen, and two of the PCs had an enemy in this one bad guy who was in this fight, and both of them were on the far side of the battle from her. And the paladin was right there, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this woman. By all rights, he should have had her killed, but Jen very purposefully... I guess, as you said, gave her temporary hit points <laughs> until the other two could get there to get some blows on her. Because, I mean, like, this is a character that one of them murdered their family. And the other one, he was a warforged that she had had in bondage. And just these two characters had reason to hate this character. Yeah. It would have just been so unsatisfying to have the paladin with no connection to this character be the one to take her out. To put it in pop culture terms, no one wants Fezzik to be the one to take out the Six-Fingered Man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if something turns out easier than I thought, I don't usually like swiping victory or uh, defeat from the jaws of victory by uh, making something more powerful. I have had some instances where I've had um, reinforcements show up, though. Mm -hmm. Especially if people take out that person really fast and really loud. You know, having reinforcements show up kind of makes sense then. Yeah. This is usually something I'll evaluate in the first round. I have had a first round go so badly for PCs that I will immediately determine, okay, instead of it being bloodied at half of its hit points, it now automatically is bloodied. Like, that's <laughs> that's a hit point total. So they only have to do half the work to get this thing out of the way because that first round, it just devastated them. So I have you know, adjusted things down like that before. I've had some friends talk about how they had DMs that just like ignored the first couple rounds and didn't even take hit points off of people because they wanted it to go a certain. I don't like doing that. Yeah. If I'm going to change the rules of the encounter, I still want there to be rules to the encounter. That's kind of why I framed what I was saying to you about that as like temporary hit points. It's not just I'm not going to let them die. It's that there is kind of a mechanic in my head that is in place and it once this happens that mechanic isn't in place anymore but it's not just me arbitrarily saying nope we're gonna suspend all the rules and this is all just narrative bs until until i feel like implying the rules again and i think one other important thing to remember is that depending upon what the adversary is 
death doesn't have to always be the final outcome. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> there was one fight in my friend Tristan's game where he was pretty sure he was going to take us out. We had just had a fight with trolls, so we're down, like, all of our frontline fighters were down hit points, and the people who had laid that trap dropped a fireball on us, which <laughs> literally dropped half the party. Our monk was down, our cleric was down, and our, our fighter was down. Our rogue was hiding, so that left the warlock and my sorcerer, and he thought for sure... Another round or two, they're all going to be down. They get taken prisoner. We'll, you know, have them wake up in the next scene in prison or in this person's prison. I got off a twinned hold person, which gave our warlock, who was a celestial warlock, enough time to basically get our monk and fighter back on their feet <laughs> and pour a healing potion down the cleric's throat. And we won that fight by the skin of our teeth. That's the thing. I don't like manipulating things too much because I've had that moment where I had a character that rolled a 20 on their death save and they were suddenly up again. It's this whole exciting thing where it's like, I am not only not dying, I can do something now and I can suddenly change it. Especially like if you're the cleric and you got dropped and you come back at, from a you know rolling a 20, that has completely changed the complexion of the whole fight as long as you still have spell slots. <laughs> there was one fight in Tristan's game where my character had been searching for a succubus that had taken her previous romantic partner away from her. Mm -hmm. And we found her in the city. This was very early in the campaign. The characters were not fully open with each other yet. I had not told my companions why I was searching for this woman. So they were all a little surprised when the wings popped out and she grabbed my character and flew straight up 20 feet and then kissed me, and by all rights, my character should have been dead, because I believe I had exactly 25 hit points. She did exactly 25 hit points worth of damage, uh -huh. and the way her kiss was written is if she takes you below zero, mm -hmm. you are dead. Period. No death saves. You're dead. Yeah. And then she also dropped me 20 feet up. Yeah. So my character should have been dead, but Tristan fudged on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, well, as long as they can get you some healing and to a high priest or cleric within the hour, we'll do it. But the, also, like, there my character is playing unconscious on the streets of the city <laughs> as my friends are like, why are we suddenly fighting a succubus? <laughs> Are there any monsters that are your favorite to work into a game? Honestly, I don't know that I have a favorite. I try and keep things fresh and interesting for my players and for myself. So I love variety. I also love being able to surprise my players with unusual stuff. As I said, my main group are all veteran players. So a troll fight really isn't going to excite them on an out of character level. I mean, okay, no, they're their characters aren't necessarily supposed to know all of the details about a troll, but everyone knows the details of a troll. So I want to find things that they haven't seen before without necessarily being too wild. I need the ecology of the scene to still work. Mm -hmm. 
I recently threw a corpse flower at them, <laughs> and that was a fun fight. None of them had seen one before, and they certainly hadn't fought one before. So while the zombies it spits out were old hat, this large, nasty, ambulatory flower with corpses in it was something completely new. <laughs> As a player, I love the big fights. I love the dragon, the kraken, the big demons. Those fights always feel like they've got a lot of weight to them and make me excited to be playing an adventurer. Um, I threw a corpse flower at the in the previous campaign, and instead of regular zombies, they were exploding zombies. <laughs> <laughs> That's just mean. So basically, it would spit them out. The zombie would take a swing at them, and then the next round, boom. <laughs> that was fun. Personally, I have this irrational love of giants, and I don't know exactly why. But that said, mechanically, in 5e, giants are not the most interesting things. They're kind of a sack of hit points that do a lot of damage, <laughs> and that's about it. So I have added things to uh, giants when I use them, like giving them the ability to knock back people when they hit them, or making people save when they uh, drop a giant to zero hit points because it might fall on them, just to make things a little bit more interesting. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember some of that. And when I ran uh, Storm King's Thunder, I also added legendary action to all of the giant rulers. Mm -hmm. Because that seemed really weird to me that these are like the pinnacle rulers of giant kind that you're running into and none of them had legendary actions. So I had some fun, you know, designing what legendary actions would look like for them. I love dragons mainly because they are great monologuing NPCs. <laughs> What's really funny is there's a lot of times when people will interrupt your, your monologue by trying to kill something. And for some reason, people don't interrupt dragons nearly as much in those <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> and then there's something I, this is just me with like classic horror monsters, but I love vampires. I don't necessarily love using them like in encounters all the time. I love them as a plot element. I love the idea that this person that you've only met during, you know, these galas that just happen to always be at night and it never occurred to you that this person was actually a vampire and you don't find that out until later in the campaign. So are there monsters that are either not designed to get into combat or for thematic reasons because of their story or whatever, they aren't usually used for combat that you like to use? To be completely honest, I treat monsters like I do almost any NPC. If there's an intelligence level there they have, and they have their reasons for being in the scene, occasionally those fights can be avoided. Occasionally they can't. When Prepping for this current Eberron campaign, I ran into a blurb about Flamewind, who is a gynosphinx who has taken up residence at Morgrave University in Sharn. I loved introducing her <laughs> as this mysterious figure who ended up coming to the PCs to ask for an obscure favor in typical riddle fashion. They have no idea what she asked them to do, <laughs> just that she asked them for a favor and then gifted them each with a prophecy that they're like, they have, what is, what is she talking about? Okay, just... <laughs> Nod and smile to the pretty lady lion person. Act like you know what she's talking about. Uh -huh. Yeah, just nod, <laughs> nod, and hopefully we can save her sister at the time when the sun sets in the... <laughs> I don't know. Now, in my first Eberron campaign, I really need to come up with names to differentiate these two campaigns. <laughs> One of the early fights had some underworld thugs show up to shake down their cavern-owning friend, who had been one of their former fellow soldiers during the last war. The thugs had an ogre with them, and one of the players cast a spell that made the ogre afraid, so I described him as starting to cry. When the fight was over, 
they spared the ogre, they bailed him out of jail, and they got him a job as a bouncer at the tavern. That is awesome. He became a regular NPC in that campaign. In the Dragon Heist game that I played in, we got into a fight with some bugbears, and the last bugbear standing, I was like, I don't really want to kill you. I don't, you don't, do you have like a problem with us or did somebody just hire you? And he's like, I, I was just trying to make some goals. It's like, look, we need a bartender. <laughs> no hard feelings. We will hire you for, and we, you know, he said something like five silver a day or something like that. <laughs> it's like, we don't want to kill you. You don't want to kill us. And he was like, yeah, it sounds good. So we ended up hiring that bugbear as our, uh, <laughs> it's our bartender. It was great. <laughs> I really definitely don't like playing things as black or white, evil or good. Yeah. I don't buy into that central philosophy of the game of old. You know, things are not inherently evil. Actions are what make something someone evil. So I definitely try and leave some of that nuance in there. As a player, I always try and be, let, let's try and talk this out first. The only time that was an exception is in our Pathfinder Kingmaker game where I really counseled against trying to talk to the trolls. <laughs> and when the trolls knocked my gunslinger out after the fight was over and she woke up, the first thing she said was, I told you we don't talk to trolls. <laughs> Some of the stuff is not even that deeply buried in the lore. If you run into hobgoblins nine times out of ten, they're working as mercenaries for someone. Because that's kind of what they've always been described as doing. And that doesn't mean that they're going to kill you and you know murder you and do all this. It, it it might if they're doing their job but if the boss is gone why why would they keep doing that well this job's over <laughs> <laughs> i know a lot of people will complain about using like celestials and angels and things like that because they don't know how they're supposed to use them and i love having them show up and be quest givers celestials are great for doing that whole you have to save the world well, why won't you do it? Well, because there are cosmic rules that you don't understand that I am bound by, so I can <laughs> let you know that the world is ending and what you need to do, but I can't do it. <laughs> it is great because it's the same thing like if a human NPC came to them and said that, they're kind of within their bounds to say, why aren't you helping? But when it's an angel, it's like, no, seriously, I can't. There's there's rules. I like using uh, low CR creatures as like messengers for someone else. Not that you've run into this at all in my campaign. My L Drake. <laughs> He's great. But yeah, there's something about those little CR creatures that you know aren't necessarily threatening to you, but they make sense for a theme. Certain fae that, you know, might be a messenger for an archfey. They don't have to be that powerful, but they could have their neat little quirk. When it comes to things that you probably shouldn't fight because they're too powerful for you, I love having like archfey and devils offering temptations to people. Again, not that you've ever seen that in any of these campaigns whatsoever. <laughs> um, but no, really, I mean, it is, it's fun having those things that at least usually when they first encounter the PCs, they have no chance of fighting this thing. But again, that thing is on this kind of cosmic scale where they can't just do what they want to do, but they can say, hey, I can give you everything you've ever wanted if you just do this thing that I can't do. <laughs> so that's... Some of the things that I like doing with monsters where I'm not using them for combat roles. For me, it's all about the ecology. It has to make sense for this creature to be here, to be involved in this narrative. As long as all of that makes sense, I'll make anything happen for the game. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. 
moving into our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. For me, I want to give a shout out to Campaign Options Mazes. It's a Kickstarter that Broken Ruler Games has just launched on September 13th, and Todd makes some amazing, fantastic stuff. And this looks to provide some fun options for designing dungeons and ways to evoke the feeling of being lost in a maze for your players. And I already backed that. Yeah, same. So I'm going to have a quick self-serving moment here where I want to point people to an article I did for Gnomes Do called Using Monsters That Fit Your Theme. I go into basically the kind of narrative themes that are associated with all the different types of monsters as they are categorized in D&D and what kind of plot elements they might reinforce. So if you're interested, you might want to swing by Gnomes Do and take a look at that. The non-self-serving thing that I would like to point out is <laughs> the uh, Bloodied and Bruised series on Dungeon Masters Guild. Um, we talked about this a little bit with monsters not being able to do their signature moves. And what this series does is it creates a lot of like status-changing effects that hit a monster when they hit Bloodied, which might be like triggering their special ability. It might be like giving them an ability they didn't previously have. It's kind of fun, and it adds in some of that fun of the 4th edition things into some of these stat blocks. Right now, they have different products for everything that has had monsters in it, and you can get like the collection of all of them right now in the uh, Bloodied and Bruised Complete Collection Bundle that has all of them in there. And it just has some neat little extra abilities for all the different monsters that have already been published officially from WotC. So I think... We've used up all of our resources again, and it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.